Hey, before we get started, I wanted to share with you about Kajabi. If you are an ambitious creative and are looking for ways to monetize online, I get asked all the time, what do I recommend as a tool? And I personally love Kajabi. I've been using them for over a year now and recommend them to all of my clients. In fact, I just got a text message, literally, who said that they are feeling more confident and excited about using this platform. And you can check it out. You can have a free trial by going to heatherparity.com forward slash Kajabi. That is linked in the show notes. Start a free trial. You can host your courses and memberships and even your email list all in one place. And I love simplification. So again, go to heatherparity.com forward slash Kajabi to start your free trial. All artists are small businesses, and that's really hard mm-hmm. to accept. But even if a person isn't seeking a commercial success for their practice, if you make things and want to put them in the world, then you are spending money, maybe mm-hmm. making money. And no matter what else you do in your life for money, yeah. whatever your day jobs are, what? you're also a small business as an artist. <sighs> for things means that you will get more. That comes from today's guest, Beth Pickens. And if this is your first time listening, what's going on? My name is Heather Parody. I am your host today. We're going to be talking about making your art no matter what. So whether you feel like you have a creative nudge and you are just doing it on the side for your own enjoyment, or maybe you want to make it into a business, maybe you already are a full-time creative business owner, but still struggle with safeguarding your creative practice, going for the ass, building the kind of business that you want. Pickens is an incredible human who's going to help us out today. She is a Los Angeles-based consultant for artists and organizations. She started off as a therapist and ended up making her own job title by bridging the gap between business consulting, the inner work, pulling in her counseling background, and meeting creatives where they're at to propel their work. Make sure you connect with her at BethPickens.com. Grab her book, Make Your Art No Matter What. Let's go ahead and jump into this, my friends, with our guest, Beth Pickens. I went to graduate school and got a master's degree in counseling psychology and thought maybe I'll become, you know, like a therapist at a university counseling center or go into private practice or something like that. What did you like about that field? What drew you to that? I love learning about people's lives. I love helping professions. I love being a part of people's transformation and and recovery and healing. Hmm. Um, I like helping reduce people's suffering. Did you practice counseling after you graduated or did you switch gears immediately? I did not. I immediately, I took a job and moved from the Midwest where I'd been in school to San Francisco because I really wanted to live in San Francisco. And I took a job in, I was actually the director of a breast cancer program in health and human services, which was like, it got me to San Francisco, but it was a really bad fit. And I really hated it. And once I was in California, once I was in California, it's totally different set of licensure laws from state to state to state in any sector, including counseling. And so the license that I would have been eligible for where I used to live didn't exist at the time in California. So there, I was just like, oh, there's no route here for that. So I'm going to go into the world that I really want to be in, which is the arts and working with artists. Was that difficult for you to let that go and lean into creativity? Mostly, I felt like I have all these student loans and now I'm not working <laughs> in the field that I should go to student loans in. So I felt a lot of 
kind of guilt and shame and felt dumb, but I love, I knew I wanted to be in the arts. I wanted to work with artists. And, and that was so important to me that I just kept following that. And it took a while before I realized how to reintegrate my counseling training. And it, it took a little bit of time. I, I want to talk all about that. Cause I think there's so many, cause at first for the longest time, I thought I wasted so much time. I wasted so much money, blah, 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 you know, the guilt and the shame. And then I've really been realizing how much there is to the world of psychology and creativity and business. All that's amazing. So I want to dig into that. But how did you know, like, artists were the people that you wanted to serve? Where did that come from? Are you an artist? I'm not. I'm Mm -hmm. not. But art is the thing that sort of draws me into the world. And it in my 20s, when I was in graduate school and working full time, I did a lot of different political organizing, mainly reproductive justice. That was kind of the world I was working in outside of my work life. And I became really burnt out in all these different ways because I was like a young person Mm -hmm. just throwing myself too much into activism with not enough time for like recovery and rest. And what I began to notice was the thing that I never felt burnt out about was art. Interesting. I came to understand that all of the art that I loved and the artists I loved, they reflected the political realities that I was drawn to in activism too. So I was like, okay, if I am in the world, it's sort of like art was just a different lens to touch all of the things that were important to me. And um, I was constantly, I lived in the Midwest in a small college town and I was constantly bringing queer artists to campus where I worked so I could have access to these artists because I needed artists reflecting these lived experiences back at me. Wow. So your solution at first was like, I'm going to kind of go the the counseling, mental health, activism, working organizations. I'm going to do that. And then at one point, there was something that switched in you that says, you know what? Creativity and art can make that same kind of impact. Yeah. Well, the artists and writers that I love were the most politically radical people that I saw in the world. They were, they represented to me, like they were the ones pushing my thinking and understanding about the world and my critique about the world. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly that was happening in, in, in school. I got a, a, a graduate minor in women's and gender studies. I, so I was getting that in an academic sense, but it was in the world of art and writing that I saw people who were really pushing my thinking in new ways and, and kind of demonstrating new ways to live and think and understand the world. That was beyond dominant culture, certainly, but even further out than anything I saw in academia. Yeah. And see, I know you talk a lot about this, but I think that's the big hang up, you know, with pursuing any kind of art or creativity is like, does this actually even matter? Is it going to make a difference? A lot of times I know for me, I've thought about one lane of like, you know, start a nonprofit and do go that way or whatever, if you really want to make a difference in the world. But what have you seen like? as an outcome of creativity and art that it's actually made a difference in the world? I think it does. It, it From antiquity on, art is sort of telling us about our lives and reflecting it back at us. And so for me, a thing that happened early on for me was a very formative experience with the Andy Warhol Museum when I was a young teenager in Western Pennsylvania. I grew up right outside of Pittsburgh. And I was this young feminist queer person without any language for any of it. And again, no internet, no yeah. reflection of any of this back at me. Right. Very little access to culture, very little access. And so I went to this museum opening when I was um, 15 years old. It was in 1994. And there were all these queer people. Artists in the Midwest? There. No, this was right outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. <laughs> I grew up right outside of Pittsburgh. That's where Andy Warhol is from. He's from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. So the museum was, was built there. 
Um, and so, and like, I later learned John Waters was there, like all these incredible artists were there that night. And what I was seeing for the first time was a legacy of queer culture through the arts. And I had never seen it before. And, but when I saw it, I immediately clocked that, oh, these are my people. Like, this is my ancestry. These are my people who are going to tell me about life and living and do it through their art and work. And so I, I, that was another important imprint where I realized I, I have to go find these artists. I got to find the weird queer artists in the world because those are my people like that's my chosen family I have to go be with them and so my young adult life was just like kind of migrating across the United States eventually to get to San Francisco and now through your work it's consulting but you bring in still some of I think it's a a Rogerian a person-centered that I think I read that you use Uh, so you still use some of these counseling techniques and really just practical stuff like habit formation, how to build a business, how to market, all this stuff to help an artist to kind of fan the flame and actually get their work out into the world, which is so cool. Uh, I think you just kind of made your own job description there. It's so badass. But tell me a little bit about how you're able to form that. Like you get out of, you know, I'm not going to end up being a therapist. I'm going to work with artists. How did you kind of pull these tools and put together a program to help artists? Yeah, because it was not premeditated. It was truly intuitive and organic. I I didn't like set out to do like (laughs) set out to do this. It sort of happened. Um, So I'm in my late 20s living in San Francisco, working in the arts. I helped start a queer artist and writers retreat that took place for five years in the Mayan Riviera in Mexico. And we would have all these artists apply and we would fundraise and bring them to this beautiful beach place, (laughs) beach side home for them to be together and have a small community and write and work on their projects. And so I helped, I was sort of like the management person of this operation Mm. and the administrative side. And the other two people who were both writers, one of whom I'm now married to, they were there as sort of like artists and residents facilitating conversation and dialogue. So we started this retreat. And the very first year we were there, I think I had just turned 30. I was still like, I can't believe I have all these student loans. I'm not a therapist, right? It was just like racked with <laughs> yeah. shame. And, yeah. and, and w- during that first year, I'm having conversations with the artists who were there and they're just like kind of talking and I'm overhearing their conversations about their, how they, their imposterism, their fears about the future, not knowing how to like make a living and balance that mm-hmm. with their art career, all mm-hmm. of this stuff. And I had this moment where I was like, wait a second, I could help them. I know about fundraising in the art world. And I have a counseling background. I know how to do career counseling. And I know how to deal with the interpersonal things that intersect with this particular group of people. Because artists are a particular kind of worker. I really see it as part of it is career counseling. And part of it is many other spheres. And so in that moment, I was like, I think I'm going to try this thing where I offer some kind of a practice that brings in all of my fundraising and arts management and art world experience with this counseling background, treating people as these individuals, but through the lens of them being artists, where that is the dominant identity that I'm dealing with. Brilliant. And so it was all of the skills I learned. Feminist therapy was my primary modality I was trained in, but it was counseling psychology, which was founded, co-founded by Carl Rogers and it's mm-hmm. Rogerian therapy, which is for the listeners, person-centered therapy, meaning your job as the clinician is to build unconditional positive regard with your client. And it's mm. the relationship that creates the, the possibility of healing and recovery. So I'm bringing in all this training and all my experience in the world and my just love of artists and my belief that that 
for artists, the, the thing they have to do throughout their life is have their practice because it yeah. will help them. First and foremost, it makes their lives better. Then if they make their art and put it out in the world, it's going to make someone else's life better. Yeah, it, And it happens all the time, no matter what a person's making, if they're willing to put it into the world, someone is going to be touched and impacted by that. They may never know about it, but it's going to impact somebody's life. So I sort of realized my evolving mission was to help as many artists, especially marginalized artists, Mm -hmm. continue making their art no matter what, and to build a life around it that supported their practice, knowing that that is very difficult in modernity. It's very difficult to live an artist's life. Live an artist's life. What does an artist's life look like? I think it's one that prioritizes one's creative practice, no matter whether or not that is yeah. monetized, but that it is an anchor in a person's life. And yeah. that is a practice that is like a daily, weekly thing of coming back to it over and over and over again. I think very simply, that's what an artist's life is. What do you think is the difference between someone who has like an artistic practice with a job, a normal job, and they make money and they're happy doing it that way versus someone who needs to quote, go all in and actually try to figure out how to monetize it and make it a full-time thing. Are there some signs there that we know that we need to be one or the other? I think no matter what, how much money, like what percentage of your income, your art makes, whether it's zero or a hundred, your relationship to your practice and your art changes as it becomes your job, because that's what happens when things become jobs. Mm -hmm. And so for my clients over the years who make all of their income through their practice, whether it's performance or visual art or filmmaking, their relationship to the art making changes. And what I find for, for artists, for example, who make all their money from their practice, we, it's useful to carve out a corner of their practice that doesn't have pressure to earn. That it doesn't have pressure right now to be monetized so that they can, so that that piece of their practice or that project is about their intimacy and relationship with themselves as an artist without the pressure of this has to go out into the world and do something. Yeah. So it's not like one's better than the other. Most artists, just most artists don't make all their money from their practice. And that's totally fine. Some don't make any and never will. And that's also okay. And that takes time for artists to come to understand that whether or not their practice ever makes money, it's still vital to their life and to somebody else's life. And of course, I want them to make money. I want my clients to make all of the money. Yeah. And that's like a thing that comes later after we build the foundational understanding that no matter what's happening financially, you have to make your art because it's going to improve your life. You you talk about, you know, in your book ways to, um, I guess, safeguard your practice and make it a priority in your life. What do you think is some of the, I guess, barriers a lot of creative people have to putting their art into their life. (laughs) I guess I know know you talk a lot about time, like there's an issue with time. We don't have the time to do it. Right. Or even, uh, stepping away, like you said, and it's completely taking time off, which hurts my feelings so much, Beth. I don't (laughs) like when you talk about that. Uh, Nobody does. (laughs) Oh, I was like sweating when I saw that. But anyway, um, uh, just share with us a little bit some of those, those, those barriers, those blocks that we have. Well, culturally, the world wants to take you away from your art and practice by distracting you or telling you that other things are more important, that are, that you get to do art that is You think not that's entitled. intentional or is that just a... I think that's just the setup of the world. I think that's how capitalism works is it teaches us that we always have to be productive and productivity equals money. So if you're doing something that doesn't equal money, then it's therefore not Useless. important. It's devalued. That makes sense. Um, and so I think 
time is, I mean, there's a reason in my new book, time is the first chapter, because I find that that's, that's a thing that right off the bat with every client we're going to talk about is their actual or perceived lack of time Mm -hmm. and how to reorganize time to open up space for their practice where it's not shoved in. So a reason I start everybody with that, asking people to take a day off from their practice and from paid work and everybody fights me on it. And they're like, are you kidding me? I can't possibly do that. Why would I do that? It makes me so uncomfortable. The reason for it, 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 it helps. It helps reorganize priorities when a person actually looks forward to it and has rest from that every week. It doesn't mean that on that day, they're doing nothing. They're just not a worker striver in that way. Then it opens up more capacity to focus on it the rest of the week. A reason why people who they do have time to put into their practice, like we can actually point to time, but they don't do it is fear and anxiety and sure. rest and restoration helps turn down the fear and anxiety. And some people truly, we have to unpack their lives a little. We have to say no to some things or turn down perfectionism or expectations of what they do in order to open up real space and time for their practice. What, what is, what would you say is your practice? Is it writing? No, I only write books for money. I truly am not an artist. I am not compelled to make anything. (laughs) And I'm married to an artist and writer and I see how much she needs to be. You make so much stuff. I write books because it's part of my job. Honestly, Your if podcast. it wasn't part of my job, the podcast is—I the podcast was a big commercial for my homework club. That's mainly why it exists. Is to lead people. It's all part of my job, and I—I I, I know myself, and I know that I—I I do lots of fun things for creative expression. I'm good at some of them, but I do not have that deep compulsion to make things in order to understand my experience. But I do need artists work in order to have that experience. I yeah. am a very much a part of the ecosystem. Interesting. So I, I think, you know, you, that's how you define an artist is somebody who's, who has to make something. Um, do you see a difference between that versus like a quote creative person? I think a lot of people are creative and everybody benefits from creative expression. It's just good for humans. But what I've observed, my working definition in my practice with artists is that artists are people who are profoundly, deeply compelled to make their work. And when they don't do it, their life quality deteriorates. So and I see that over and over and over again. Whereas like, I could go months and months and months without doing a creative project and it's fine. I get, I, I get those things other places. I don't need it from that place, but I see artists and writers need to get it from that place. Mm. They, they need that connectivity from other sources in their life. But one major source is they've got to have their creative practice. Interesting. Uh, another thing that made me nervous that you talk about, there's a lot of things, um, but you're really big on asking and just going for the ask and, <laughs> That makes me uncomfortable, Beth. And I think it probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So hard to ask for things. Can you share a little bit about why you think that's an important part? Why you included it in the book? And why do we get so hung up on asking? Oh, my God. That was actually the first chapter I wrote when I wrote the book proposal. I was like, where do I start? Oh, with asking for things. And how that's hard for 100% of artists I've ever worked with. (laughs) And getting, getting more, not even comfortable, getting willing to ask for things means you'll get more stuff, whatever it is. Hmm. I think most people are socialized in different ways with different messages about how asking for anything is bad, wrong, immoral, and indicates that you're not good enough, that Hmm. it would be offered to you if you were. We get so much different kinds of messaging based on gender and race and class about asking for anything. When really, 
we don't do, nobody does anything alone. Like things happen yeah. through collaboration and support and help. And there's no person who like did something and nobody ever helped them. And whenever that kind of mythical person is upheld, we can just do a little poking around and see that, oh, they had a support system that's maybe unnamed mm-hmm. and made invisible now, but they were there. Um, but the more an artist asks for something, whether studio visits or applying for things, asking for money, asking for help, and gives those things too, the richer their life is, the bigger their community is, and the more they get. Some of it's 100%. just like probability that the more you ask for, the more you'll get. You might get like 70% of the no's, yep. but then 30% of that will be yes. Yep. And the more you ask, the more you strengthen the muscle of detachment from the outcome. And yeah. when and when somebody says no or doesn't answer, it hurts or, or feels bad less and less and less and less. It gets yeah. much more manageable. What about, I don't know who to ask. I don't know the people to connect with. Cause I know that's something that I hear all the time. It's just kind of oh, like yeah, this totally. fog and this confusion. I don't even know who to reach out to. Yeah. I think that's an ask in and of itself is asking somebody like, can you help me identify who to ask for something? Oh boy. It's like bringing it down to yeah. the original ask. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good, that's good. Just talk, talk to me a little bit about the, the business side to things. Um, I feel like, you know, if you want to, if you have this deep need to express yourself and to be true and to be honest about blah, blah, and, and you know, your, your work and your art, this is my thing or whatever. It, it feels like almost that there's kind of a, almost a compromise there when you have to kind of start looking at the market and what, you know, what's being sold and figuring out, okay, do I create for that versus creating what I want? I just kind of want to know here about your philosophy with kind of merging those two worlds together. I think all artists are small businesses and that's really hard Mm -hmm. to accept. But even if a person isn't seeking a commercial success for their practice, if you make things and want to put them in the world, then you are spending money, maybe Mm -hmm. making money or asking for money. You are dealing with administrative tasks and communication. You are dealing with forms. You are um, advertising or marketing or soliciting things. All these things that mean you're you're a small business. And no matter what else you do in your life for money, whatever your day jobs are, you're also a small business as an artist. And most people, people who go to counseling school included, don't learn any business practices. We have to learn these in work. Oh, yeah. Right. My entire master's degree, there wasn't a single day of a single class where we talked about how do you actually build a practice, your your business, your, your, um, your private practice. So artists that's changing a tiny bit in formal art school now, a tiny bit. And that's, if you go to art Mm -hmm. school, there are some professional practices classes, but most people, when they come to me, not only do they not have those skills, they're really afraid of them and believe the story that, well, I won't be good at that. I can't do that. And they're the afraid is, of like, them. That's artists, interesting. Some artists are really good at lots of different parts of it and some aren't, but they're all skills that can be learned. It's interesting that some of them are afraid of that. That's interesting. Totally, totally mm-hmm. afraid, afraid of money, of marketing, of asking for things, of dealing with administrative tasks, how to balance um, the the creative practice with the administrative side. I'm married to somebody who she would rather have nothing than fill out a form ever. Every grant she ever got, I wrote and applied. She would rather have nothing than fill out a form. She gets so overwhelmed by forms and instructions. And I've, I've known other people like that, but there's ways around it, like help. I, I would get again. along with her so well. I went to go get my uh, my vaccine and I literally like was texting my husband. I'm like, there's all these questions and I don't know the answers to these, all these words. Yeah. 
Yeah. Some people get really overwhelmed by a lot of instructions and that's fine. There's like a way to navigate that. For sure. I talk about that when I teach grant writing, I talk about that a lot. Our time has gone by so fast and I wanted to circle back real quick um, to the counseling piece because I was curious, what do you think that you've brought into the world of creativity and art working with artists that you learned from counseling specifically that you wouldn't have ever maybe figured out or tapped into without that, that background and degree? Oh my gosh. So much. I bet. Most of the work is drawing from my counseling training because I got really good training from brilliant, brilliant psychologists and truly half of the practice is the counseling training and half of it is working and navigating art worlds. It, I mean, here's the thing. Even if I had never learned how to make money touching those skills, going, getting a counseling psychology degree, like made me a better Person. human. <laughs> it totally did. I mean, it really helped me because when you go through that degree program, you're in your own therapy and you're, you're, when you, it's it sort of like accelerates the, the clinician's own therapy when they're doing therapy with other people. So like it totally was worth it, even if I had never figured out a way to make money from it. What, what do you think it is that people, why people need that relationship so much like you coming in and having that relationship with them, that person centered approach, is it permission? Is it somebody believing in them for the first time? Like, what is it about that? Like therapeutic relationship that Mm. creatives and artists need? I, the the thing that lights up in my clients' eyes over and over again when we start working together is I think they feel really seen accurately. I see them seen. as artists and I believe they need to make their art and they've dealt with so much of their life fearing that that, that wasn't true and they had to mm. justify it. And so they tell me that they feel seen and understood. We and need that. I mean, we need that. Everybody needs to be like, have somebody reflect you back at you accurately and then say, and that's okay. Like everything about you is okay. Amen. I have one final question for you, but where can people stalk you online? You have a membership. You got a new book. You got a few books, but where can people get all the goodness from Beth? All the good stuff. BethHiggins.com is the website where all the things mm-hmm. live. And then I give out lots of professional advice and updates and things on Instagram at Beth Pickens Consulting. Awesome. All that will be linked but to the I show notes. I'm about to take like probably the whole summer off of Instagram. So go to my website. Are you really? <laughs> Yes. Mental health break or? Yeah. 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 I don't blame you. I do not blame you. All that will be linked in the show notes. Very last question. I'm I'm curious. You seem very strong to me, like a, just a very strong force, strong woman, confident. And I just, I wanted to know, just like looking over your life thus far, I don't know, themes and things you've picked up and learned about yourself uh, through following your own curiosity. I guess, and allow, because that's a, not a lot of people give themselves permission to do that, to switch gears and to trust that and all of that. And I just love to hear you, you know, high level overview, what it's felt like, what it's been like for you to trust yourself and uh, create your own life. Mm. While it's happening, like most people, I think, what am I doing? Does this make any sense? And it's only when I zoom out, I can see the connectivity between all of the things. Come on. Big thank you to Beth for coming on today's episode. Make sure you connect with her at BethPickens.com. Again, grab her book, Make Your Art No Matter What. I am cheering you on, my friends. We love you. We're in your corner. See you soon. Hey, y'all, before we go, if you are not following me yet on TikTok, what you doing? My username is at Heather Parody. That is P-A-R-A-D-Y. I would love to connect with you over there if you are doing the TikTok thing. Again, that is at Heather Parody. P-A-R-A-D-Y.